0: He speaks fluent Klingon, backwards. The best story he's ever told was to himself. Of the two women he's slept with in his life, one fell asleep, the other thought he was someone else. Dogs take him for walks. He is the world's most semi-interesting man. I
1: don't often smoke. But when I do, I only choose Vista Vapors. Visit them today at tinyurl.com slash p3vista. Keep it flavorful, my friends.
2: Welcome to P3 Radio. Oh, my God. (laughs) Demolition, we're coming for you, baby.
0: (laughs) And uh, if you're going to call me back tomorrow, whatever, i get, You better believe I took my turn in this. (laughs) (laughs)
1: what cool story bro
0: pg3 radio
2: here's your host josh friday i wonder when fritz is coming up sometime you know all three of his sons will real soon richard Relic. i don't know is this making any sense to anybody out there
0: it's showtime it's showtime
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to P3 Radio. I'm Richard Mulliken, joined by my co host and best friend, Josh Briley. Say hey, Josh.
2: How's it going, everybody? This week, I am super duper excited.
1: Super duper or superstar? Superstar excited. Well, we have none other than Memphis Wrestling legend. Probably all of you have watched him in your homes at one time or another. You've heard stories about him. You've watched him wrestle. You've seen his work. Who do we have? Superstar Bill
2: Dundee, brother.
1: Superstar Bill Dundee on the show this week as part of a two-part series for P3 Radio. So we're going to have him on the next two shows on P3 Radio. It was just so good, we couldn't edit it out. And we'll have all of that, plus more, after this commercial break from dollar wine club when you go shopping for wine do you look at the labels do you stare at the price and wonder if the wine is worth the expensive tag well stop it because wine of the month club has you covered every month wine of the month club is going to send you two bottles of high quality wine right to your front door
2: And what better way to say I'm thinking of you than a subscription to the original Wine of the Month Club for a friend or a sweetheart. Each month, they'll be reminded of your thoughtfulness and will receive the monthly wine letter and newsletter binder. Recipes, wine knowledge, and great wine, and the opportunity to get more of their favorites is at hand. Give with confidence and joy, knowing that you're a part of the original Wine of the Month Club. By the way, there are no
1: dues, no fees, no hidden charges. Cancel anytime with no obligation. Just pay no more than $23.96 plus shipping for two great bottles of wine. Go there now. Sign up by visiting our link, tinyurl.com slash p3wine. That's tinyurl.com slash p3wine. The Wine of the Month Club, the original wine club since 1972. Ladies and gentlemen, right now on the P3 Hotline, Josh and I are honored. We watched this man growing up. I was honored to meet him, be in the ring with him a couple of times when I was wrestling. And I mean, it's truly an honor to have such a legend on the phone with us right now. He's been a booker. He's been a promoter. He's been a wrestler. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us right now, the superstar, Bill Dundee. Bill, thanks for being here.
0: Well, guys, I appreciate you with them kind words and... uh. I've been looking forward to this all week, so just press the button and let's get it going.
1: (laughs) Well, we appreciate you being here. You know, when I first got to know you, it was about 16 years ago. I was 18 at the time, and we had had some talks before when I was a fan. But 16 years ago, I went into the Thomason Warehouse in Jackson, Tennessee, where you ran the Bill Dundee Wrestling Academy. And my buddy, who was a student there, brought me in, and he introduced me to you, and he said, Hey, Bill, this is my buddy Richard. What do you think? And I said, I remember thinking, like, Bill's going to look at me, and hopefully he's just going to be like, man, he's such a big guy, because I was 6'3 at the time, but I was really chubby. And you looked at him, and I was like, hopefully he's going to be impressed. And you looked at me for about a second, and you said, I I think your friend needs to work out a little bit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Before coming to the U.S., you wrestled for – well over a decade in Australia. Tell us how you initially got into the wrestling business.
0: Well, Australian Championship Wrestling was run by Jim Barnett, and Jim Barnett run Georgia Championship Wrestling you know, way back in the good old days, and he just moved his operations-type thing to Australia, called the Australian Championship Wrestling. And guys like Mark Williams, Cole Murphy, Brooke Bernard, Red Bastine, Mario Milana, he still lives there. They, they were all, and they were all monsters—great, big old boys. The right. six foot was short for them. You know what I mean? So I started off in Scotland my, with my uncle in a judo school. We, he taught judo, and I—I I did judo. And two guys came to work out, and I said to my uncle, "I said I've seen them two guys somewhere before." And he said, "Yeah, you're Saturday afternoon. There's wrestling on in Britain every Saturday afternoon." Yeah, you probably saw them on TV they're professional wrestlers, so I Oh, I'm okay. So I went over and talked to him. I said, How do you get into this professional wrestling business? And I was about hundred and seventy pounds ring wet then. He said, Well, son, you better put a little weight on. I said, Well, okay, David won't Goliath, so but I will try. So that was how it started. I saw them and I knew I could do it. I watched them work out and I thought, I can do that. That's about the same as Judo. So that's how it all started for me then. A next-door neighbor of mine introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Ken Fure, and he had a wrestling school, and he had a son that was about my size. We're both about 175, 180 pounds, ringing with. And he says, I run shows on the weekend, and my son don't have an opponent. I said, Well, he's got one now, so I wrestled him for the next <laughs> five years. Every time they had a show, they put me against him because we were the same size. Everybody else was a whole lot bigger. So that's kind of how it started. And Bobby Shane saw us and said, you two would get over good in Tennessee. He said, the light smaller guys over there. And I said, well, Bob, we've had this story told through a hundred times and we're still here. He said, well, I promise you, this is no story. So he got on the phone that afternoon and talked to Jerry Jarrett, told him about us, decided the paperwork, and said, here we are.
1: So y'all are actively looking to get to the States to wrestle then, right?
0: Well, yeah. Whatever you do, whether you're a rock and roll singer or you're a wrestler or, or you're whatever, there's more money to be made in America than there is anywhere else in the world. So everybody, doesn't matter what you do, you, you want to come to America.
2: Were you nervous at all about uprooting the family and coming to a new country or were you pretty gun-ho about it? <laughs>
0: Now that part, is uh, do you think we will make it? I mean, I, I had to, you know, but like I kept saying, everybody said I was too little. So, but, uh, but that time I was up to 210 pounds. So, I mean, I couldn't get no taller, but I'd, I'd put weight on. So, right. I mean, it wasn't exactly a midget when I came here, but I wasn't six feet tall either. Right. So <laughs> on my ability, I wasn't scared about that. But yeah, when you have a, a wife and two kids and you just say, look, we're moving to America. And then you get that look from her like it's just you look at she looks at you and think, well, we're doing what now? She, well, we're gonna to, go into America. So anyway I went, stayed a month and sent for her and they came over and everything was good. She liked it, the kids liked it, and George never liked it, so if he stayed about six months and said, Look, I can't do this no more, I'm going home so he went back to Australia and they'd made me the good guy and here we are. 40 years later.
1: How hard was it for you to get into the country back in 75 when you came in?
0: I I really don't know. Miss Jarrett worked on all the papers, and, and and we filled them in. She brought them in to me one day. Obviously, he here sign here, and i sign my name. The next thing I know, I have a, a work visa. You have to get a work visa so you can wrestle. And then we got the work visa for a year, and then I said, look, I'd like to stay here permanently. So she said, let's work on your green card. So. We worked on the green card and we got that, and here we are. Did it seem like it was hard and a lot of paperwork? No, I mean, but I never had to do any of it. It was all done. I just signed my name when she would say, Here, sign your name here. So, But yeah, there was a little bit of red tape even back then.
2: Did you plan on staying in America for good, or did you think that eventually you would go back?
0: No, I came here to stay. But, but moving around the world was never hard for me. I was born in Scotland, lived there I was 16, Then my family moved to Australia. And then I, you know, from 16 to 32, I was 32 when I came to America. So from 16 to 32, I lived in Australia, and I liked it there, and I liked that. And then I came here, so I had to kind of adjust it to wherever the hell I lived. Wherever I hung my hat was home. <laughs>
1: I know in an interview I heard that you had done, you said your partner, Barnes, when he left, he said he was tired of dealing with the Yanks. Probably the first time anybody from Memphis had been called a Yank, (laughs) ever. (laughs) Uh, But whatever happened to George? Did he continue to wrestle back home?
0: Yeah, until it went away. It went away, too. I still talk to him. We Facebook one another back and forth and do all that kind of thing. George was... He could do anything with a car. If he could fix the engine, he could if it was in a wreck, he could fix the body work. He do and that's what he still does. He drove a truck for a while but he he has his own bodywork shop and works on cars. He still sends me pictures of old cars that he finds and then he does them up brand new again. So He's still doing okay. He was more talented than me doing real work. (laughs) What would
2: you say were the main differences in the audience, say, in Tennessee versus the fans in Australia?
0: Well, there there are really none. I mean, the the wrestling business today is all, I'm not going to blame just Vince McMahon for ruining it, but you can't call it showbiz and say this and do this and do blah, blah, blah. Then get the fans to get mad. How are they going to get mad at you? You don't get mad at the, at the movie bad guy when you go at the movies, you know what I mean? right? And that's a kind of what they've done to, to wrestling. But back in the good old days, if you was the heel, if you was the bad guy, the people didn't like you. We believed it was real and we were convincing you it was real.
1: When I first started with your school, one day I came in uh, and I had gotten this shirt as a gift, by the way. I didn't buy it. But I had gotten this shirt as a gift, and I was wearing it as like a workout shirt at the gym, and it had uh, this guy by the name of Paul Levesque Triple H on it. I think you talked to me for a good 15 minutes. You cut a good 15-minute promo on Triple H and how he was killing the business. I don't know if you remember that at all, but if you do, was there any heat between you and Triple H, or was it just a aggravation of where the sport had gone at the time?
0: No, well, just the aggravation of where the sport had gone, and he just happened to be the name we picked. I met him, you know, and we'd been around him, so I'd been around him, and I liked him. Right. Paul Levesque, his real name, right? Yes, sir. So we're, we're, we had him somewhere else, and I asked him, I said, what the hell is your real name, man? <laughs> he said, Paul Levesque. I said, well, why don't you wrestle as Paul Levesque? He was wrestling so somewhere. I don't know if we had him in Memphis wrestling under a goofy name. Or, he said, no, no, I don't want to be Paul Levesque, so, that, but I go along all right with him.
1: You know, actually, right after your tenure in WCW with Steven Regal, he teamed with Regal for a little while as Jean Paul Levesque. Then they changed him around to some goofy name like well, was you,
2: He was terror terrorizing
1: too. Yeah, and I
2: think something he, like that
0: yeah. that was that was okay. This, now you brought the the, the blue old memories kicked back in. <laughs> terrorizing was the name that Killer Kowalski gave him. He started with Kowalski in New York. And and that, he was a big old boy when he showed up here. So I, And I asked him, I, that's how I knew his real name. He was working as Terror Rising. Like, I mean, you know, Terror and Rising. Right. Know he, that, that's how he explained it to me. I said, that's a goofy friggin' name, man. <laughs> What's your real name? He said, Paul Lebec. I said, well, be Paul Lebec, for Christ's sake. And he said, well, no, Killer give gave me this name and said it would be good. I said, well. Kowalski, you know, he, he made a lot of money, drew a lot of money, and was a hell of a worker. I said, well, I think he's wrong on your name. Yeah. Well, I, obviously he was right, because they changed it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he wrestled a little bit with Regal as Jean-Paul Levesque. He was a blue blood. and uh, Yeah, and Bobby
0: Eaton was a blue blood, too. Right.
1: Bobby took... Bobby took that spot when he left to go WWE now Triple H wasn't in that spot long he he left not too long after and a lot of people don't even remember him being a blue blood but back when you first came to the territory fans were a little bit more rugged than they are today in an interview Jim Cornette was talking about you have a scar on your chest from a nail file how did that happen if that story's true (laughs) <laughs> that story's
0: true. And it, it wasn't really a nail file; it was a little pocket knife. But it, it looked like a nail file. But anyway, this girl—when you was the heel I was walking down the aisle, and there was a girl sitting on the right at the edge of the front row, and she had a baby with. Her, and, and I was just trying to get a little heat. So I said to the woman, "I said, you are drowned that when it was born." <laughs> <laughs> So she had it in her hand and she passed the baby to, I guess, to her husband or whoever the hell it was sitting beside her. And she hit me on the chest with her. I thought, what the? F-? And then I looked down, it was bleeding and the cut and all there. I said, well, what could you do? Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. so I just went on. We did, went to the back and the doctored up a little bit and I still had the scar. So that's how I got that in Louisville. So, I mean. She didn't like me to start with, so when I told her she should have, you know, what she done with her baby when it was born, I guess that just <laughs> pissed her off and stuck the thing in me and pulled it down my chest. What was one of the scariest
1: run-ins you had with a fan where you were like, oh, "This might not turn out too well for me, or him, or both of us"?
0: Well, in this again was in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> so me and Jordan was coming out the back, come to a car, and there was two or three big old rednecks standing at the back of their car. So, the, and, they, and they would cuss at you and yell at you. I mean, when you was the bad guy back in the good old days, people that you know they didn't like you. So Barnes says to <laughs> me, would says, I kicked your ass. So we started to walk over to their car, and the guy says, he said, ain't going to kick my ass. So he popped the, the key in his trunk, he opened the trunk and pulled a shotgun. And he pointed at us, and I said, well, George, what what are you going to do? So, will you shot us? I don't know. We never took no more steps forward. We just left.
2: <laughs> probably the best choice.
1: Well, you probably have... Right. I was going to say, you probably have hundreds of those stories from the Memphis area back in those days.
0: Oh, in the good old days, people, if they, if you was the hill, they didn't like you. They didn't mind. They would flatten your tires on your car. They would throw bottles at you when you drove by. They would do... They would just... You know, I mean, the different different era. The kids, the the bad guys today, or whatever you want to call them, the heels today, they have no clue how it used to be in the good old days. Did they're mean- entertaining themselves. They just go up the ring and flip flop around like yeah. a, a monkey on a chain, and they don't really know what they're doing. When you was a heel back in the good old days, the people did not like you.
1: Yeah, probably the last person to get that kind of heat in this era would have probably been Sergeant Slaughter when he turned and said he was an Iraqi sympathizer. They beat his car up, and they'd have to... But it wasn't anywhere near what the heat they used to get in Memphis with the bottles and the knives and the guns. And how many times would you say you've probably had to fight your way to the back just to get out of the ring oh, to the locker room?
0: Just fighting the way to the back to get to to and from the ring. Damn near every night. If you did a hot angle in the ring, something bad in the ring, to get heat in the ring... You had to get to the back. And them big old rednecks and the big old boys was going to at least have a punch at you on the way back. But you no know, pass. So, right. yeah, often.
2: In 77, uh, you had the famous no DQ Lawler's hair versus your wife's hair. To your knowledge, had...
0: X ex. X yeah, yeah. yeah. Hair. X wife. Yeah. I wonder I wonder I wonder why it became X <laughs>
2: Well, to to your knowledge, at that point had a woman's hair ever been put up? How no. hard was it how hard was it to convince your ex at, to get her head shaved at the time?
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean it was for a I gave lump of money and she says, "Well, who who gets the money?" I said, well, it's your hair. You get the money money for the haircut, dollar, and I'll get the money for the rest. So she said, well, okay, we just bought a new house, and she wanted new furniture. So she said, okay, then we'll do it. So that all started off as a joke. Me, Lawler, and Jerry Garrett were sitting in the office one day talking, and... We'd done it all. We'd run the gauntlet on matches. We'd had about 10 in a row and, you know, whatever you could do, we'd done it. His car, my car, he won the car back, I won it back, all kinds of things. So we'd we'd had the hair match, he cut my hair. So I'm sitting there and a the cue ball and we're sitting at the table and we said, what the hell can we do next week? We've done it all, he said. How about your wife's hair? And, the, and me and Jared both looked at him like, Whew He said, I said, Beverly's hair? You, Miss Dundee's hair? He said, yeah. You think she'd go for it? I said, I don't know, but I will ask her. <laughs> so that's the kind of how it started. And then when I went home and presented to her and told her how much money she could make, that all made a difference.
2: Were you already involved in booking in the 70s, or did that come about later on in your, your career?
0: No, no. Everybody puts a pair of boots on thinks they can be the booker. <laughs> and I don't care whether it's you or it's Jumpin' Jack Flash or whoever. They all think they can book. They know what they're doing. and Me, me too. Same way. Right. So I got the bright idea one day to go to Jerry Jarrett and say to him, Hey, man, I want to be the booker. This was in about 1976. He said, you want to be the booker? I said, yeah, I want to be the booker. I said, I've seen you do it and Lala do it. Lala had been there since 1972 or whatever, and I got there in 75. So this is about five years later. So I said, yeah, I'd like to be the booker. He said, well, go get a book and a pencil and write out a card. I said, do what? He said, go get a book and a pencil and write out a card that you think would draw in Memphis on a Monday night. So I go and do all that. Consequently, the card never got used nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. You know, he decided to show me how you did TV and what you did and what you didn't do and how you did it. And we had a live show, remember. So we went, we, it wasn't like you ride the TV and you tape it then you can you have a week or a month to do something with it. We was doing it live that Saturday morning. So that's how the kind all started. Jarrett took me under his wing and here we are.
1: You guys were some of the first to integrate the big entrances, the music videos, and Lawler talks about in his book how he was set to go out on this big white horse and he's riding this white horse out. And you had already came to the ring on your motorcycle. And he said, he's, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's riding this white horse down. And he says, he sees this girl and it looks like she's passed out. And he goes, man, we're getting some reactions like the Beatles get. Girls are passing out. This is going over. And he says, he gets in the ring and he says, he goes up to you and he goes, can you believe how over this is getting? And you said, no, man, the lights hit me in the eyes when I was coming down, took out the whole front row. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> I the, told the, the guy, yeah. "Do not turn the lights on, uh, uh, the, the the spotlight. Do not turn them on when I'm coming. Just let me come in with a house light, not spotlight." He said, "Okay." So, yeah, that that was now, that was quite uh, an, an interesting night. <laughs> yeah, now-, now Here's the end part of that story, but the, the thing, Bobby Monroe was Jerry Jarrett's limo driver. He wrestled a little on on the side every now and again if we needed a body for something, Bobby would do. But he had, he was actually the limo driver. He drove Jarrett around. That was his jack. So he's there. So well, we do the deal, the girl takes the bump. So Lala's coming by on the horse, and it's quite funny. I'm watching him, and he's covered, the, like, the, the the white knight on the big white horse, and the people are going crazy. A little bit, of, I mean, some for him and some for the thing. So he passes the cop, carrying the body, and he, the look on his face, it's, it's priceless. He just looks down, and he sees this guy walking with his body. So he pulls the horse up alongside the ring, and he steps off, and he what the hell? What? He said, this is good. I said, that's great. I said, i run her over. <laughs> he said, so he said, is she dead? I said, I don't know. You passed her before. You saw her <laughs> after I saw her. I said, I have no idea. How did she look? Halfway up the aisle. No. And so anyway, we're in the ring. We have the lots And so when we get to the back, everybody's there. They're giving her pictures. And, you know, tell them, all. blah, 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 blah. So, you know, she gets all up pink and everybody's happy and then just before we all leave to going over the little parties we did little over bobby monroe says hey darling you ain't gonna sue us are you <laughs> <laughs> nobody brought that word up but nobody got sued but if that happened today they would have owned the coliseum i've been working for that woman for the rest of my life <laughs>
1: That's like asking a cop, are you going to check the trunk? You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, Bill didn't hit her like just ran out and ran into her. He was driving a motorcycle at the time. That was his big entrance. Bill was on the motorcycle. And somebody said something, too. The floors used to sweat a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Did that you- was the main thing that caused it. Because when I touched the brake, I was going too fast. Now, Jerry, Jerry, <laughs> when we first said about doing it, Lala's going to be on the on the horse. Dundee, you can use my golf cart and stand on the back of it. Eddie Martin will drive it and stand rub the cape on the back and do the thing. I said, man, I don't want to go on a freaking golf cart along on a big white horse if the fabs are in the limousine, and I'm on a fucking golf cart. I, that, I don't want to do that. He said, well, what do you want to do? I don't want to ride my motorcycle. He went, oh, no, I have more sense than do that. You're not riding no motorcycle to the rink. I said, come on, Jerry. So for a week, I talked to him. Monday night comes, he said, uh, Monday morning comes, he said, I have more sense than to do this, but take your motorcycle. So I went and loaded it up on my truck. We drove it to Memphis, and then that's uh, how it ended up running into the lady. (laughs) He said, when I passed him in the back, he said I was going 50 miles an hour. I mean, that ain't quite so, but (laughs) he said it was. And I want to touch the front brake, which you know, you slow it down with that. I didn't want the back end of the bike to slide around. I want, you know, that's what you do. You put the front brake on just a little first, and the bike stops in a straight line. Well, this one just slid out from underneath me and just bam into the front row. I said, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Memphis
1: used to be big on doing music videos, and one of those videos right. was a song that you were in called Bad Reputation by, I think, Joan Jett?
0: Joan Jett, right, um, yeah.
1: Which had clips of you from your matches, but you were riding your motorcycle as well. And it always stood out to me as a kid. Why were you riding a motorcycle through a field in that video instead of on the road?
0: Well, if you'll remember, i got off the motorcycle and climbed up on the fence, and I walked along the top of the fence and looked like I was dancing around and doing a... I was just making something... Bad reputation type thing. People would, if you rode a motorcycle back in them days, you people thought you was bad. So we did the bad reputation thing, that and all that. So yeah, and and, and it was entertaining. So that was just uh, to do different. But the first one that was made was Lawler. He he made the, the actual first one of Jerry Jarrett. You know, did back in the day, and he did the first one with Lawler, and they had Thomas Marlin, who's Eddie Marlin's brother, fishing in a boat sitting in a boat in the lake because they lived on the big big lake up there. And it was like he was fishing. And Lawler was in his speedboat. And he would come flying up to him and splash water on him and make waves. I mean, if you're fishing and somebody's on the ground in the boat, you're not going to catch no fish because you're scaring the fish away. (laughs) So that was the first one that I ever saw here. And that was Lawler being the heel in the boat.
2: Speaking of people that did videos, handsome Jimmy Valiant, he he had one... I think it was Raised by a Gypsy or something like that, but it was yeah. really big. I remember, you know, it was on the radio even in Memphis. How was it working with Handsome Jimmy back then?
0: <laughs> Are you talking actual wrestling in the ring with Handsome or just being around him or being his tag team partner
2: well, just, you know, I, I know he wasn't very complex as a wrestler, but just say, like, backstage, was he anything like his nothing. persona?
0: Nothing. Never said a word, never spoke. Hey, brother, how are you? He not, not, nothing like the. Hansom Jimmy would have been one of the first guys to meet. Jerry Lawler was Jerry Lawler 24 hours a day. Bill Dundee was Bill Dundee 24 hours a day. We talked the same in real life or on the street or whatever was talking to you. Handsome was being one of the gimmicks. He never talked like, Nancy Danny, hey, Handsome dear, he was in New York City, so he? and he rambled on 100 miles an hour. He never talked like that. If you saw him on the street, he would say, hey, brother. <laughs> so he he was so different as his character, and he would be one of the first, and I hate using this word, character, but Handsome came from New York, so they were, they were different up there anyway. And as far as wrestling, was he Billy Robinson? No, he was not.
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. He had that finger poke up the butt that used to
0: really drive me. <laughs> that I hated it then, and I hated it now, and I never wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do all that. If I'm on a show with him, I will tell him, you "Don't you're not doing that today." That is absolute bullshit. But that's all he could do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was one of my grandmother's favorite wrestlers, though, just because of the character. But
0: I mean, it was entertaining. Well, it was entertaining, but it had nothing to do with wrestling. No. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, how he couldn't wrestle a He didn't know the difference between a wrist lock and a wrist watch.
1: <laughs> now, nowadays. And I could, love
0: him to death. Right. But, and he, he knows.
1: Nowadays, he'd probably be a manager, right? Probably be a great manager.
0: Oh, well, you can talk. I mean, you, you, it was just, you know, different there. And here's the thing back in the good old days, We believed, and we were making, or hoping we could convince you all to believe. Today, they just watch the show, it's this, it's that, and the young kids today have no clue what it was to be like 20 years ago. And I know John Wayne wouldn't get a job in the movies today either, but he was the big-time cowboy when we were growing up. And, you know, they don't even make Westerns real good no more.
2: One of the most... Notorious Memphis stories was Handsome Jimmy. He left the territory and I think he went to work for uh, Mid Atlantic or something like that. And Jarrett and Lawler or whoever wanted him back and he just was adamant about not coming back. And they offered him a a freaking house to to buy him a house in Memphis. And they buy him the house. (laughs) Uh, I mean, they said he had like black appliances, black, all kind of everything. And what, did he stay for like a month and then just...
0: Well, was a little longer than that, but I mean, he was just... Yeah, not, <laughs> they bought the house, Hanson moved into the thing. I don't know if Hanson was making a note on it, but they put the damn payment or whatever it was, they did the thing. So when Hanson decided he was leaving, they were willing to get the house back. And Lawler said when he went over there, everything was black. You know, he just just, didn't look nothing inside that they bought. Handsome had changed with all the goofy colors and all kinds of things. I never was in it, so I couldn't really tell you what it looked like. But Lawler said it was just nothing like a house that normal people would live in.
1: (laughs) Any stories that you have on working or being around Tojo Yamamoto?
0: Oh, Tojo, he was a good, Tojo was one of them guys. If he liked you, he he couldn't do enough for you. If he didn't like you, he was mean. (laughs) So like like that t- type is fine. I mean, I, I and Tojo, I got along good with Tojo, and it was just he, he was and for a guy it was. I mean, I, I was short. I'm five seven, and Tojo was three inches shorter than me, but he was two hundred and sixty pounds. So you saw how he looked.
2: What was it like going from working with Jerry Jarrett and King to working with the cowboy Bill Watts? Uh,
0: Bill Watts was what you saw. A big, boisterous redneck. <laughs> and Jerry Jarrett was a little sneakier redneck. And they had both the same role in life to make them them as much money as they could. Bill Watts and Jerry Jarrett that were, were both driven by dollars. But we all were. That's how we got in the wrestling business.
1: Right
0: <laughs> Now, Bill Watts had the bigger territory, so... He could pay you more money, but you run seven days a week, and you were all over the friggin' place from Oklahoma City down to Houston, Texas, and that's a long way in a car. So, I mean, it's just, I and I like working for Bill Watts, and I like Bill Watts. I like Bill Watts's family, so, I mean. I got along good with everybody. I hell of like Jerry Jarrett and like his family. I go all on I thought I could go on all right with them. So I mean, it w- if it hadn't been for Jerry Jarrett, there would be no Jerry Lawler, no Bill Dundee, no Jackie Fargo, no Tojo Yamamoto. There'd be no Handsome Jimmy. There'd be a lot of guys who wouldn't have got a break nowhere. There was nobody bearing him.
1: You came in as a booker for Bill Watts's territory, and he's credited you with a lot of great ideas. Now, right, we all know. That when you come in as a booker, there's always somebody that doesn't like the boss. Did you have any trouble with the established talent? The talent that was there before you got
0: there when you came in? Well, here's how I got the job with Bill Watts. His theory was on its backside. There's no two ways about that. It was deader than Kelsey's doodads. (laughs) So he and him and Jerry Jarrett were friends. So Jerry invited him up to take a look. And they were going to switch talent. You no, know, restless. So we're sitting there, so Jerry Jarrett says to him, you ought know, to talk to that little fella over there. And watch, you know, Biggie has looked at me like thinking, what the hell is Jarrett trying to tell me to take this itty-bitty bastard for? So <laughs> anyway, he says, no. He said, you need to talk to him about being your booker. So he comes over to me, and he says, uh, I just talked to Jarrett, and he says that uh, you would be good to talk me do down there It's, it's the booker. I said, well, okay. He said, can you come down on Friday to Houston, Texas? I'll get you a ticket, fly you down, get your hotel, and all you know what to do for you when they're courting you. I said, yeah, I'd be there. He said, and don't tell nobody who you are or what you're doing. Now, some of them, the Bush Reeds and the Hopsaw Dovins, they may not know me so much because they were all down there, but the ones that had been around, so a lot, some of the people knew who I was. Right. I know, from Memphis. So I do what he says. I come around walk around Houston and look at the matches. He said, look at all the matches. I said, okay. So I do all that. So I w- walk around like people look at me like, what's this little sod off run doing out, You know, blah, blah. So anyway, that Friday night passes Saturday morning. We stay over in the hotel Saturday morning. We go for breakfast. He said, what do you think, kid? I said, about what? He saved my talent." I said it all sucks. <laughs> he said all sucks. I think you dead on your ass, ain't you? So, what would do you suggest? let change it around a little bit. You talked to Jerry. Jerry said you could swap some talent around and do whatever. So, well, are you interested in the job? I said yes, I am. He said you probably have to move to Louisiana. I said that's no problem. So he said no, we we do pretty good here when the therapy's clipping. He said, You probably wouldn't have a week below $3,000. I said, Do what now? He said, You probably make around three grand a week. I said, I'll start tomorrow. (laughs) In '83, that was a lot of money. That's big money now. (laughs) Exactly. And that was the the minimum. Wow. So I said, Well, okay, we'll talk. So, anyway. I go home and now again. I just bat, bat like the haircut match. I miss Dundee. <laughs> I say, We're moving to Louisiana.
1: <laughs> Wasn't even a question, huh?
0: Right. So, no. So, it's Louisiana. Say, yeah. So now we have to put a crew together. Well, it's not hard. Ricky and Robert, rock and roll. Dennis and Bobby as the. Uh, Midnight Express with right. James E. Cornette, who'd never really done nothing as far as he was second fiddle to Jimmy Hart in Memphis. So I knew getting him wouldn't be hard. That he would, you know, he would want to be the number one manager, which he was in Louisiana, and we got a lot of heat on him. Gave him a tennis racket, and he walked around with that. And Buddy Landell, of course, the best of the nature boys was that one nature right. boy, Buddy Landell. 'Cause I'm not a fan of the other one, but that's <laughs> another story. So, so I took Buddy, Dutchman, Tail, me. So they were all guys that trusted me. If you're going to have success as the Booker, you better have the crew that trusts you. So off we go to Louisiana. And they all moved down there. I moved down there and we moved to Alexandria, Louisiana. You ever been to Alexandria, Louisiana?
1: No, I can't say that I have.
0: Well, you haven't really missed nothing. <laughs> but the, the reason we we picked that to live in, it's the middle of the territory. So anyway, we uh, do the first TV, Ricky and Robert. And they go over like rock stars. It was unbelievable. So about two weeks into the, to the, the lower deal. I I've never been six foot two or three and two hundred and eighty pounds, so I don't know how they think or what what they you know what I mean how they see life. Right. So he says to me, "You ain't gonna fill this place up a midget, are you?" I said, "Fill the place up a midget." What? You know he says, "Well, the next very big and Ricky and Robert, and you know he said they're not the biggest guys in the world." I said, "Do you see the women when they walk to the (laughs) ring? Have you paid attention?" (laughs) So anyway, about a month later, when the checks were out the window, and, well, my God, the astronomical, everybody's making money. Place is on fire. Bill Dundee can do no wrong. Rick and Robert were like rock stars walking down the street in Louisiana. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they were like that just about everywhere they went. And the Midnight Express, I mean, we're talking about two major players in the tag team divisions, and it's just it's it's awesome that you were able to grab them because... At the time, I, I mean, Memphis was using them, but I think when you brought them over with you, you kind of pushed them on that platform that really put them out there and got
0: them noticed. Well, yeah, I mean, they were different in Louisiana. They weren't different in Memphis. That that was the Memphis style of what we did. So it was it, it wasn't really that they were all that different. I mean, and then the other thing was Bobby Eaton was my son-in-law. Right. So, if I'm going to take him somewhere, I'll better look after him because he's looking after my daughter. Right. You know what I'm saying? But he could work, and Dennis Condry could work. And Cornette was the icing on the cake as far as being the manager. I mean, people, Jimmy, you, you, you've been around Cornette a little. By the time, if you start talking to him, by the time the conversation's over, you want to punch him in the nose. <laughs> I mean, and that's just how it is. Natural heat. And I like Jimmy Cornette. And he would made a lot of money in Louisiana and different places. when we went to Atlanta, I took him down there. And so, technically, Bill Dundee was as much of a fan as Jimmy Cornette, trying to get him started in the wrestling business as anybody. But I knew he could draw money. You guys
1: turned that place around. And like I said, Bill Watts credits you guys for turning that whole company around. Right.
0: Here, here, Here is the thing. And the boys get mad at me for some this way sometimes, but the monkey only dances as good as the guy grinding the organ handles. You know when you saw the the, the old sideshows with an organ grinder and they have a little monkey on a chain and it's yeah. dancing and the guys cranking the handle. That is the thing, and that is that today I don't know how what bookers do today, but mind me, I told you what to do, and you'd better do it or the next step you were out the door.
2: Bill Watts, he was notorious for finding guys, like for just sometimes. Being they said, late. Yeah, minute yeah. reasons, sometimes, sometimes big. Were you a fan of the whole finding the boys system?
0: Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, how do you punish them? I mean, it's like today, I, I don't really know how. If you just say, oh, well, I don't care. It's if you're running a show and some idiot's coming in, you have no idea what it does to your show. Right. So if he's going to be late don't be late and if you're going to take 100 or $200 off his paycheck this week he ain't going to be late so yeah I was a kind of a fan of that but it wasn't me doing it so I could be big and bad with Bill Watts standing behind me you know what I mean <laughs> <Exactly>.
1: <laughs> well the sound of that song means that we have reached the end of today's episode of P3 Radio we'd like to thank Bill Dundee for being a part of today's episode
2: and be sure you tune in next week for part 2 of this very, very fun interview. Well,
1: for Josh Brawley, my name is Richard
2: Mulliken and we want to say
1: thanks for tuning in and good night.